to the USA Hockey Podcast, a youth sports conversation focused on providing players, coaches, and parents with engaging and informative content that they can use at home and at the rink. Tune in as we chat with some of the greatest people around ice hockey and youth sports. Join the discussion on Twitter at USA Hockey Coach. Now, let's drop that puck. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the USA Hockey Podcast. My name is Zachary Nowak, and today we are welcomed by Stuart Armstrong, who is the strategic lead for Workforce Transformation for Sport England and the host of the Talent Equation Podcast. So, Stuart, welcome on. Hey there, Zach. Good to see you. And uh, forgive me because I've got a, a dog barking at the back back door here. He wants to go outside and chase rabbits or something. So, uh, but yeah, no, great to be with you. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be surprised if my dogs also uh, bark at some point throughout this. Um, one of them really likes to snore, uh, so I had to lock them away during any any podcast interviews because he's a big he's a big snorer. So, um, anyway, so to kick this off. I would love uh, to walk through kind of the Stuart Armstrong youth sport experience because I've heard you share it before. And as for many people, uh, it's a very unique path from uh, where you were and, and to kind of where you are now. So kind of share that Stuart Armstrong youth sport experience. I'd love to hear about that. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a unique experience, I suppose. Um, I, I grew up I grew up in in the UK in North Wales initially, but my, my father was a Marine pilot and, uh, he took a number of contracts in different parts of the world. So I was in West Africa, uh, when I was about four or five, um, French colony. So bilingual, um, good example of how immersion, the process of immersion can, can be used for say language learning. Um, and uh, nowadays, actually, if I ever go to France and I start speaking French, words come out of me that I don't even know I know, uh, which is bizarre. Uh, but then, yeah, and then um, we came back and then we went about a couple of years later, we then went out to a place called Papua New Guinea, which is an island just above Australia and lived there for about three, four years. And I guess so. I guess throughout my childhood, I was exposed to kind of a very outdoor life, lots of backyard games, playing with other kids lots of kind of more formal sports playing against, you know, kind of uh, different kids from villages, you know, indigenous populations and things like that. Um, often getting beaten, you know, 17 nil or something like that in uh, in playing soccer and stuff like that. So, yeah, very much a, kind of a, an outdoor backyard games. I, I remember, for example, we I was very fortunate. We had a, quite a big garden, big backyard. That actually backed onto the ocean you could actually like go to the end and jump off and have fun if you so desired um and uh we we built our own like golf courses and stuff like that using you know kind of bits of um you know bits of tree and fashioning clubs out of whatever we could find really uh, i did that when i got home as well by the way when i go back to the uk we did something similar um and uh yeah we used to play a lot and even when, so when i got back we used to play a lot of backyard or or even driveway games you know so driveway soccer loads of different games that we would create we would have we would play like driveway cricket where each each person's driveway had its own characteristics ours was on a slope friends of mine had theirs that was quite cracked 
So, of course, when the ball lands on that, it all does all sorts of things. So they were all different characters and we gave them all different names. And, you know, growing up as well, we used to go up practicing and I would try and encourage my friends or my little brother to, you know, carry on playing and bowling at me. And I'd give them all sorts of in- encouragements to do so. So, like, games were definitely a massive part of my upbringing um, and designer games that we designed ourselves. You know, and of course, you don't, you never want a game to be too easy because, like, it's boring waiting for your go, right? So you you make the game harder so that no one can like have, you know, their uh, too long a time at bat or too long a time, at, you know, doing things that aren't interesting. You want lots and lots of rotations and things like that. So we were always in the designing process, you know, trying to create these sorts of environments. And now I look back on it, I think that's been pretty influential on how I think about youth sport now. Well, and it's interesting you, you talk about that because I remember on Twitter uh, a while back, I think it was during COVID, I believe it was you and your son, you were posting a bunch of backyard games and uh, things like that. And kind of in a, I guess in a, our youth sport landscape now is almost a little bit more formalized at times where how did your son enjoy kind of playing those just backyard well, he's probably used to it being with you, but uh, how does he enjoy those types of games like you used to? Yeah, it's funny. We, you know, it took the pandemic, didn't it, to be able to do. I, I don't get to do as much of that as I'd like. I mean, part of that is is to do with the fact that, you know, working from home and that kind of thing. Plus, with coaching, you know, we go out to do, you know, what you might call the more formal stuff uh, quite a bit. So actually, backyard stuff isn't we haven't done as much of so the pandemic gave us the chance to so those videos i put them out there just to give people ideas i guess and also just to share what we were doing um but it was i was working from home but my wife had to close her business down and we were home and she was homeschooling and what i found was every time i got involved in homeschooling so that we shared it i would just mess it up uh she got into quite a good routine and quite a good rhythm and so we pretty much quickly realized that I needed to sort of stay out of that space so that she could, because she had her own way of doing it. It wasn't necessarily my style, but it was fine because it was working. So my job was IT. So I would always come in if there was like a problem with like the teams or with like that they couldn't get onto, you know, or they needed to work out how to use some piece of software. IT and PE were my two jobs, right? So once the school day finished at around about three, I basically blocked out my calendar so that I had a, an hour at least of after school club where well, we called it the after school club. So like we would just go out in the, in the garden and just like, play. Oh, hey, it's the only place we could go. Right. So we would just create stuff and uh, we were very fortunate to have that kind of space. I mean, we haven't by no means have we got, uh, we haven't got a massive space, um, you know, garden wise, but we have some space. So it's about using what you've got as well as you can. Yeah. So we, um, we were inventing games, you know, uh, I've got a spike ball set, so we worked out how to play two-player spike ball against the wall, and we were playing various like versions of sort of squash stroke tennis against the wall. Uh, we were creating like parkour courses and playing chase tag. We created an obstacle course in the back garden with my daughter and my son, and we had to create like a handicap scheme because obviously he's fa- older and faster. Yeah, so we had a whale of a time, to be honest. It was brilliant. Um I mean, I wish it was in better circumstances because nobody wants to be forced to be locked down. But there was a huge part of that period of time that I look back really quite fondly, if I'm totally honest. 
Now, so you, you talked about that you personally don't get as much of this time anymore, but do your kids still get some of that time where they're kind of creating their own games with, with friends and, and things like yeah, that? Yeah, wh wherever possible. I, I have this dream, Zach, actually. I've, I've read this article a while back. I can't remember exactly where it was. I'll try and dig it out. About this guy that basically just opened his backyard up to all the local kids. And, cr and just put like loads of play stuff in there and just said, look, anytime you want, just come on in, right? So I think it's an ace idea. Um, I mean, you know, obviously there's going to be some challenges from a privacy perspective that we might not like, but I have this idea of doing that. So our, our backyard is just full of goals and um, play stuff. I actually astroturfed my back garden because, our, well, two reasons. One is our grass would never grow that well because of like just the atmospherics and we've got neighbors with big trees that don't allow much light. Plus it never grew that well because we were always playing on it and it never got a chance to recover. So uh, I decided to put uh, artificial turf down. And part of the reason for doing that was, well, a half, just between you and me, it was partly because I really wanted my own kind of chipping and putting green for golf. Um, I never quite got what I was after because I wasn't allowed to have the kind of length of, astro that i wanted but anyway we did we we compromised so we can play field hockey on there we can play soccer we can play cricket we can play tennis we can play all sorts of games on there so that was part of the reason to create this play space and the second reason was and then we've just got loads of equipment so whenever we have decent enough weather we're in the middle of winter now so it's not that easy when i have decent enough weather i encourage my young my my two to just get out there and start playing they don't always play brilliantly because there's a big age group between them age gap but we quite often as a family go out there so whenever we've got a bit of time and space with like my wife plays field hockey as well it's kind of where we met um and so we'd often we'll often play it'd be me and my daughter against my wife and my son and we have some absolute ding dong matches uh or you know we'll just we'll get the tennis rackets out and we'll start doing that kind of thing and just creating a bit a bit of time and space for us to all sort of connect together and do that kind of thing i'd love to do it more i have to say you know, like most families these days, we're very busy off to like multiple different clubs and all that. Some of them I run. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's a bit of a bit of a challenge. But, yeah, in general, if we can, that's what we're trying to do in the in the outside space that we've got. Yeah, I, I won't lie. The second you said backyard turf, I was instantly thinking, oh, man, I could chip around back there. I could, <laughs> my, my girlfriend's just getting into golf, so. Um, I'm trying to ride that wave as long as I can, but, uh, yeah, no, I was thinking the same thing and that's great. I mean, for the kids, like that's, that's really, really cool. And, um, I love that, that you guys, obviously everyone's really busy, but I love that you guys try to make time as a family to go out there and do some things together. Um, I'm sure the kids appreciate that and I'm sure you and your wife appreciate that. But, um, anyway, moving into kind of where you are now or maybe kind of your professional life within sport can you explain um you know kind of where you've gone through because i know you've been a part of a lot of different organizations within that area with uk coaching with uh i think you were with england rugby and then with um sport england as well right so um can you kind of explain your maybe your professional journey through uh sport yeah i um i originally wanted to be a graphic designer um, and then my art teacher caught me on the field hockey pitch for the 15th time when I should have been in his class and said, I think you should have a career in sports, son. which proved to be the best career advice I was ever given. Um, 
So uh, yeah, I then followed and did a degree, and then I I ended up doing a ended up uh, I started in in fact, funnily enough, I started where I live now. It's my where I got my first job, which was in working for the local district council as a sports development officer, providing you know kind of activity sessions and you know trying to work work with local clubs to help them develop. And funnily enough, I helped to set up the sort of junior the junior program at the hockey club that I currently play at. Um, I say play out, I'm the chair now and coach at and all those sorts of things. I don't play as much, even though I did play on the weekend. And now I'm feeling it like I can tell you, I can hardly walk. I look like John, I walk like John Wayne. Um, so uh, that's a retro, retro uh, uh, <laughs> reference for you. Um, but I, um, so yeah, so it's literally a stone's throw. I walk past it every day when I'm walking the dog. And uh, and that was where I started. I got my best, like my grounding in kind of, you know, sports development. It was in its infancy then. And then I got a job working in golf. I had five years working in golf. We created a new program that we could do golf in primary schools with plastic plastic clubs and foam balls so that it's safe and it's easy to play. We did lots of, we designed, we designed games so that a class of say 30 children could all participate in a relatively small space and all have a good a good time uh, in a safe way uh and from there i then had a bit of time working private i went into a talent role from there so i started out in children's golf then i moved into a talent role working coaching and that kind of thing again in golf then i worked when i went for to a bit of time in a private sector trying to create the like a new innovative form of golf um uh, professional game which was really an interesting time Led UK coaching. I was their talent lead for a while, working with uh, looking for ta- developing talent coaches. We ran loads of talent breakfast clubs and did some innovative things. Like uh, we ran the we ran an, uh, the first time we did a live streamed uh, talent breakfast club. Um, uh, we did it around the Olympics because uh, we were hosting the Olympics in 2012. And then, the, like I said, I had five years in rugby again, doing player pathway talent development type work, particularly working with younger players and. We launched a program called Kids First, which was very much focused around, you know, kind of providing a child-centered environment within clubs, which was which was really exciting and lots of stuff like that. And then, yeah, then got this job with Sports England, who I've been 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 out now for seven years as the head of coaching. Um, and basically, I oversee all of the um, all of the work. We we basically provide investment to or funding to uh, forty-five different sports. And uh, obviously, they've all got coaching programs and coach education and coach development. And it's about sort of helping to channel and support them to provide the best possible experience for coaches as they can. Um, yeah, and that's that's the day job. That's the journey. Yeah, that's uh, and it's really cool. So you talk a lot about talent here and I'll kind of transition into um, what I think my favorite thing is um and one of the biggest influences on me as a coach uh was when i was pointed towards the talent equation podcast which is a podcast that you host so uh can you explain kind of the birth of the talent equation podcast and maybe some some things you learned along the way because i i know just listening from i think i listened when i was put onto it i listened from the very first episode on and i've listened to most most episodes i can't say i've listened to all but most episodes uh, along the way and it's been um an unbelievable trans it's helped me transform as a coach so uh curious about the birth of it and then yeah where it's kind of gone you, you. you're one of those unfortunate people who's basically had to follow my 
learning journey in audio engineering and editing. So me, me listen, me too, me too. So. <laughs> Those early ones were uh, were very experimental, and in fact, the first one I remember, I think it's probably the one that I'm most famous for. One of the early ones, anyway, was recorded as I was walking from the train station in London to my office, which is about a forty minute walk. Um, so you've got me slightly out of breath, lots of traffic noise. Um, and it, it was when I first coined the phrase, the war on drills, I think, which, yeah, probably was the, I, I still don't know, right, whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Cause it's definitely, it definitely, I think it caught the imagination at the time. And I think it, 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 it created a lot of eyebrow raising and probably, I think it definitely got me some notoriety so on some levels that was a probably a positive thing but it also got me some probably some infamy as well because I put, I put a bullseye or a target straight on my back and uh I've had quite a lot of people come at me ever since um so that's been quite interesting experience um I yeah wh- where did it come from well the genesis really was um I as as my own coaching journey was sort of running in parallel to my career, you know, I was very fortunate. Obviously, through my career, I was able to learn a lot about talent development, learn a lot about coaching. A lot of that then influenced my practice. I met a lot of people who were also influential on me and changed the way I thought. Um, and I, as I was learning and developing my own practice alongside the stuff that I was learning through working in the industry, I started to try and document the stuff I was learning. So particularly when I was working in these talent roles, uh, it started in golf a little, and then it began to sort of morph as I started to do more and more with talent uh, With when I was working in UK coaching particularly. I started to document my thinking and some of the research and some of the things that I was finding uh, in a blog. So what I'd often do is, for example, I'd either write a long-form post or I would, and usually they were trying, I was trying to capture reflections of what I'm learning. And some of that was a way of sharing, but mainly it was also because as I was sort of progressing in my own coaching career, I knew that reflection uh, was a really powerful tool. And it was something that um, people would look at if you wanted to move to sort of the higher levels of coaching as part of your evidence of your uh, learning journey. So I started to document it and I, me being me, you know, I'm pretty, my wife will tell you, I'm pretty obsessive about, I always want to do maximum efficiency. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do it for myself, I'm going to put it out there into the public domain as well and share it with other people because then it sort of serves two purposes. And lo and behold, people started to really enjoy that. I mean, these were the early days of relative early days of blogging and coaching, you know, now, now they're 10 a penny. So I started doing that and that got really interesting. And then I found the writing really challenging because I was starting to get more and more kind of like, you know, roles that required lots of traveling. So my main source of information, I used to read pretty voraciously, but I couldn't read as much as I was. So I would start to get information through either audio books or podcasts because I was spending a lot of time in the car traveling around. And a real voracious, like, consumer of podcasts just thought they were amazing. The fact, people put this stuff out there for free. Very little out there at that time directly related to coaching. But I would be, you know, I'd find stuff related to, say, psychology or human development or these sorts of things. And then I'd relate them, um, you know, and you could. And obviously now there's way more. And I always had this goal of having a podcast because I, I'm, I'm much better verbally than I am written. Um, it takes me way too long to write. Uh, I'm 
I don't know why, but I just struggle, you know, I struggle to express myself as well written than I, than I can verbally, you know, and I've got a face for radio, as, as, as people often tell me. And so therefore, I thought, well, podcasting is definitely going to be one of the avenues, but it was quite technically demanding. I, I made a couple of false starts. Uh, tried to do it at one with your very own uh, Heather Mannix and um, Amanda Visek when they came out with the fun map stuff. Um, I tried to record one of those. You know, we were using Skype and the recording failed and internet was bad back then. And, um, you know, it was really difficult. And then, you know, podcast hosting, you had, there was a lot, it was quite technical and I really struggled. And then it, it just became a little easier because various platforms started to come out that you could do it that made it a bit easier. And, you know, Zoom came out with a recording capability, so you didn't need a third-party recording software plug-in for Skype, which was also a real pain. Um, and so I began these conversations. And, you know, I, I found them enormously valuable because, you know, these were – and the reason I did it as well was because I used to have really good conversations with people. And I used to think to myself, I wish I'd recorded that because that would have been brilliant for other people to hear. And so once I got the means to do that, I began basically just contacting people, all the people who've been influential on me, and saying, hey, fancy having a conversation, tell them to that. And so I started it by walking through London. That got the ball rolling. There were a few tests. And then I started to talk to other people. And that's when it became really interesting because obviously the podcast is only as good as its guests. People don't want to listen to me rambling on. Um so um, yeah, that was the genesis, really, and it's been. And I, you know, what am I now? Uh, Two hundred and twenty episodes, you know, five hundred plus hour, hours of audio, and it's just an endlessly fascinating experience. I get to have great conversations with people that I find enormously rewarding um, and beneficial to me, and I get to put them out and share them with other people, and um, I feel enormously privileged to be able to do so. Yeah, your 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 story through it too is kind of reminds me a lot of uh, myself when I first started. I started really getting into the research, and I started. I was trying to you know read a few books, but I just didn't. I didn't have a ton of time to sit down and do it. So I started listening to a bunch of podcasts, and uh, Dave Caruso and Ken Martell pointed me towards yours, and uh, even Rob Grace, who has been a uh, kind of listened to those alternating for for such a long time. Um, but just hearing some of the research and, and kind of where things are going is has been really influential for me. And I know for anyone listening or any coaches that are looking to get into um, some of these different ideas in, in terms of um, challenging the traditional way. And you talk about that war on on drills. Um, so I'd love, can you explain uh, to me and everyone else kind of, what do you mean when you say the war on drills? Because I know it doesn't mean we're not doing any activities in practice. When you say drills, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I'm glad you asked for the clarity because a lot of people would have switched off otherwise, wouldn't they? Um, before I just jump into that, it's probably worth a uh, big shout out to Rob Gray. Um, yeah, we, like, no, I like to think of Rob as a, as a friend. Um, we've never actually physically met, but lots of my, lots of the people I know and treat and consider friends, we've never actually physically met. We only got to physically meet recently because I happened to be over in the States and what a blast that was. Um, I, what was I going to say? Yeah. So Rob's podcast, I, I think of Rob's podcast as like the, the smart older sister of this podcast. <laughs> so this one's like, you know, kind of, more uh, a conversation. I, I, I call this pod, my podcast like a, uh, a 
I call it an emergent conversation between practitioners. I mean, I sometimes have authors, I sometimes have uh, researchers on, and I try and kind of interpret their research so that it's accessible to me by asking all the kind of the stupid questions, I suppose, that I guess we all would want to ask if we get a chance to ask a researcher about their research. And they seem really only too keen to talk to me about it because they love the fact that their research becomes more accessible because they know the way they've got to write it in the academic stuff is not always that accessible for everybody. So um, that's been quite useful. But Rob's stuff's brilliant because he really gets into the into the depth of the research, right? So, you know, if you're really into the depth and you want to get a really in-depth, you, you go to Rob and then usually mine will have some level of parallel work uh that but it's more practitioner led so it hopefully brings it to life in a kind of you know at the at the coal face type of thing and so i'd like to think of them as sort of quite you know kind of sort of almost related in that respect let's just talk about the war on drills so my thesis is this um so first and foremost what is a drill in my mind so a drill is a particular form of practice type um we we tend I, I know certainly in um, what you would call hockey, right? I'm going to differentiate by calling it ice hockey because obviously I'm involved in field hockey. There's various forms of hockey, so we have to distinguish. I know you just call it hockey because, like, it's ubiquitous, and right? But let's just say it's ice hockey, right? But in your world, in the ice hockey world, the word drill is used a lot, and it and it actually describes a whole range of practice activities. Um, I like to distinguish a little. Right. So for me, a drill is the kind of activity that you would do where it's quite isolated. So it's there's no opponent. Um, you know, usually there's usually cones that you are, that you're dribbling round, uh, or some other kind of inanimate objects that you're having to manipulate the puck or the ball around. Um, you know, it's very prescribed where you move to. So there's a there's a, a, a prescribed path. That you have to follow, um, and and it's uh, you know I, I you see them everywhere you, you know and you also see you know you see cues there's kids waiting their turn right to go so that's another really good sign that there's a drill there right so there's a queue kids waiting their turn the pat you know it's isolated there's no opponents um, there's a, pres a pre-prescribed route to follow and there's usually some inanimate objects involved in that process right so that is it that's how i describe a drill um an isolated you know kind of movement pattern and uh you usually they are done in order to develop technique so basically people you know the view the thinking is that if you get lots of well if you get goes at you don't get lots of goes because there's a queue right you don't get as many goes as you'd like but if you get you get goes at a movement pattern and that develops a technique, which is a movement pattern. And the idea being is, and then once you develop the movement pattern, you can then go into a game. So I reject that notion um, because, well, firstly, uh, it's really dull, really dull. Um, and it's also based on what I consider to be a flawed model of human development. Uh, which is the flawed model is that you develop technique and apply it in context. Now, lots of people will tell you that, or, or actually, no, it's one, it's one explanation 
out there in the world, you know, kind of in the literature around, say, I'm going to say human development, learning, skill, you call it skill acquisition. Skill acquisition tends to put it in a box. So I don't necessarily think it's about skill acquisition, albeit, you know, if we are trying to help young people to become more capable in a sporting domain, one explanation, and I'm going to call this the established explanation, right, which is based on a particular branch of uh, psychology um, called cognitive psychology, suggests that you move in that in that order, what's called the linear route. So you develop your learning, your, your te technique, your movement pattern, and you apply it, and then you take it into a context with a load of other people, and that movement pattern uh, you know, trans transfers well. There's little evidence to suggest that it does, um, and actually, most coaches, I can ima I imagine, will have experienced this: the frustration of we've done something, and then we go into the game or the match, and you don't see it, and it's like, why? We've just worked on it. Most coaches will have experienced that frustration, and it's because of this of that model of that linear technique to context approach being pretty flawed there's an alternative explanation it turns out with a whole body of research behind it which suggests that movement competence is something that is a is, is done in response in adaptation to a context so for example if you're involved in a 1v1 with somebody like let's say you and i are involved in a 1v1 my movements are defined by you or vice versa depending on what it is we're trying to do. If you're defending me, you're looking at my movements and responding to me. If I'm, you know, if I'm attacking, I'm, I'm looking at your movements and responding to you. And actually, the more time you can have in that dimension, whether it's 1v1 or 2v1 or 2v2 or 3v3 or whatever it is, the more time you're getting to be able to understand the, that sort of relationship. And that's really where skill emerges from, because these movement capabilities are responses to the actions of others. Likewise, you know, you've got to coordinate with other people as well in a team game like, like uh, ice hockey. So therefore, the more time you get of that. So the more time you spend without that relevant information, other people, are, you know, teammates and opponents, the more time you spend doing that is time doing stuff that is um, not really relatable to the actual game that you're going to play and as a result of that it's not that valuable because actually any active any movement pattern learned in isolation has to be relearned in context i've never met a coach who says i've got loads of time can you help me fill it i've never met one they've always said i'm really really short on time well why would you spend time doing something that's not that you're going to have to do over again and redo why? It's because there's this dominant paradigm that nobody nobody contests. They just accept it because that's what everybody is kind of taught about learning because it's what you get in a school environment, right? So drills are exactly that. They are artifacts from that notion of how we learn in, in sport and physical activity. I'm not saying that that's the wrong way to learn in academic contexts. I'm not going to say that. I've, I've got my own views about that, but I won't get in that world. Right, but there may be perfectly good reasons to do that in academic context when you're learning things like maths and. But in a physical dimension, in a team game, particularly, 
It applies to non-team games, non-team activities as well. But in a in a in a scenario where you've got a team where you've got to coordinate with others, and you've got to coordinate against others, you need to maximise the time spent there. So the war on drills is basically to rid the world of the idea of these impoverished um, practice forms that really serve no purpose. Now, the other reason I really, really hate them is they're dull as you like. And, and we, but we've traditionally said, right, kids, do these drills and you can have, a, and if you do them well, you can have a game at the end. Right? What? Why? What if you didn't have to do that? What if you could get young people playing games from the start and design the games in such a way that actually they get really great experiences, right? And they become even more skillful than you have. Wouldn't that be the best thing in the world? Isn't that like the absolute golden egg? Of course it is. So I, the thesis is we have that at our disposal with some imagination and a different way of looking at human development. And if we can commit to that and rid ourselves of the notion of drills, and the reason I want to warn you, why? Because I've had to put myself under a constraint, never to use a drill ever again. Why? Because it's so easy to fall back to it, isn't it? So I, by saying to myself, I'm never going to use a drill ever again, it's a bit like giving up chocolate, right? If I don't eat chocolate, then I don't end up eating cookies, and then I don't end up eating other things as well, albeit I don't very do very well on that one, so we won't use that as an example. But you, you know the point I'm trying to make, right? Which is, I've constrained myself never to use a drill again, so that I'm forced to design activities that are that are more enriching, and it means it forces me to be creative. It forces me to think in a different way, and my challenge to the rest of the coaching community in the entire globe is to do the same. So this is the type of stuff that really got me going originally, and I got so excited about this. Um, and it took me a load of time though, to figure out what does this look like and feel like in my, in my environment as a coach, like, how can I do this? Because I was, I was coached this way. I was coached the, what you called the established way and all the activities I knew, you know, were essentially drills, right? They were, they were very prescribed and we have it in hockey. that's often called like a flow drill. Um, and we even still have, you know, the, the skate around cones and stick handle through cones and, and those types of things. And so for, for coaches hearing this information about how um, essentially time efficient this can be, because to your point, like, I, especially in ice hockey, ice time is expensive. We don't have a ton of it. Um, where can I go? What, like, what is one step forward that I can take to move towards um, the designing these types of activities for my players so that they are a little bit more time efficient? Um, my, the skills that these kids are practicing are more likely to transfer in the game. What would be maybe just one step that a coach could take right now? Um, well, um, I mean, the first thing is, is always wherever possible. So, if you're on your own, right? I mean, if you're fortunate enough to have ice time on your own, right? Or let's say you're on the driveway with inline skates and, you know, a ball and you're just doing handling stuff and it's just you. I mean, go for your life, right? You know, just skate, 
handle the ball or the puck and you know wang it into a goal or wang it off a wall or whatever it is, right? But if you're in a situation where there's other humans around, other kids, right? Well, that's great because you've now got opponents and teammates. And so I, I do a lot in like field hockey. Like, we're, they're stick games, okay? So we run, you skate. Um, if I could skate, because uh, I was born with upside down feet, which means it's not very easy to skate. Um, but anyway, if um, if I could skate, I would have loved to have played uh, ice hockey or street hockey, because obviously there's not that much rink, rink, they're not close by rinks here either. So therefore, you know, street hockey is probably the most accessible form, and then you can move to to ice. But I would have loved to have played that game. Um, just ace, you know, brilliant. Um, and uh, but we so field hockey, they're both stick games, and so they both have their own elements of manipulation of an object with a stick um, or an implement. Now, um, if you've got other people around, you want to do that with somebody trying to stop, trying to get it from you. Like, because that's just gold. That's gold moment. That's gold time, right? So within my field hockey sessions, we do a lot of what we call me and my ball time, right? So it's everyone's got a ball or two people have got a ball and they're going to contest it. And we spend a good period of our session, the early part of our session, in what I would call a 1v1 game, whereby they are, you know, I have loads of different game forms. We've got one called um, uh, Truck and Trailer. That's where both have a ball and they're following each other. And one is the truck and the other one is the trailer following them. So if the truck veers off, the trailer has to follow. But they're both, they've both, both got a ball and they're following each other and it's being responsive to the leader. And then they swap over. The other one is called... Um, dogfight right where like one's trying to take the ball from the other and the other one's trying to run away you know trying to dodge them like they would be in a kind of you know like a like they're two fighter planes oh no sorry that's not that's battle zone dogfight is the one where they actually try and shoot each other with the ball so they're trying to shoot each other's feet but they've both got balls um like a fighter plane dogfight so lots and lots of variations of games where you are 1v1 um you know, and I could go on. There's uh, millions, right? I and I probably haven't got. I've got a decent enough list, but loads of people out there have got even better lists than me. Um, you know, and I do lots of like manipulation. So in the game, like Battle Zone, right, which is basically one person's got a ball, the other person's got to steal a ball from the other person, and once they've stolen it, the other person tries to get it back. So I've got loads of like tweaks on that one game that become different games. So, for example, there's one form where you're not allowed to turn your back on your opponent to protect the ball with your body. So now you have to face up all the time, which means you've got to move in different ways. So that's a different form of the same game. So that's battle zone, no turn, right? So that's the the no turn format of battle zone, right? What you find then is young people have to use, they use backspace, so they run backwards to to get away and then sideways in order to avoid. And they, they do a lot of manipulations laterally and backwards um, to try and avoid contact. There's battle zone no contact where you can't go through the player. So the idea of sort of like, you know, kind of trying to dribble, you know, push the ball between their legs and chase through behind, that's gone. You can't do that. So you have to manipulate to the side. Um, There's loads of little rule changes that you can make that actually bring about different action possibilities. Um, And yeah, so, you know, the list goes on. So that's that would be the tip I would give everybody, which is, if you've got other human beings around you, make use of them. And where possible, make use of them in a way that is fun, engaging, you know, uh, dynamic, 
got lots of decisions, um, lots of touches, lots of goes, probably quite a bit of failure and breakdown, but that doesn't matter because it's all part of the learning. And in fact, we need to reframe re- reframe the word failure actually as just learning. Um, fail stands for first attempt in learning, by the way. Um, my kids are bored of me saying that now, but that's the mantra. Um, yeah, and that's so that would be my recommendation is take any drill as you would, you know, which would you would normally do isolated around cones and put somebody else in the mix. That's the quickest way to do it. If you're not comfortable doing that because you're worried about safety, then just gamify the drill somehow, right? Give it pressure, give it, make it a race. So it's got time pressure, you know, uh, all that kind of thing, right? At the very least do that. So it's more engaging. You know, I'd prefer you used an opponent, but if, if you can't go head to head as an opponent, at least make an opponent side by side and it's like a race and that puts the pressure on and therefore we've got something that's more realistic. Yeah, so, it, you know, it's really interesting and um, you talked about it a little bit and it, we do not have enough time to go into this, um, but you talked about manipulation of constraints, just changing, you know, different rules, the amount of opponents involved, what kind of space you're using, just all those sorts of changes that Stuart's talking about. There are just small small things you can do to your current practices to make them a little bit more transferable, gamify, make them a little bit more fun, increase the amount of decisions that, that these kids are making. And, um, you know, you're kind of, uh, if you make it fun and challenging, these kids want, they want to achieve that challenge, right? They, they want to escape um, from the opponent behind them and, and uh, you know, their buddy and, 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 it's a, it's a lot of fun to, to watch these kids do this stuff. And, um, but it's, you know, just by saying, Hey, you have to face up, um, you know, against your opponent, just that simple rule or constraint change forces them to do a whole load of different movements, um, that will, to your point, will be required in the game at some point, And they're doing it under the context, um, that it'll be required under. So this is really really yeah that was really good and uh obviously if you want to learn more about that we have a ton of stuff in our our clinics about the constraints led approach but even then it's just um that's barely scratching the surface level of some of the stuff so um Stuart, this was really good i love this um this is a really great conversation for our coaches and um you know for people that want to get in touch with you because uh there's a, there's a lot of stuff that, uh, a lot of information that's in your head that obviously to your point has been thrown down in a podcast, but if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about the talent equation podcast or what you're doing, uh, where can people find you? Um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm on all good, all good podcast, uh, podcatchers, if you like. Um, so yeah, I'm available on all the, like all the main ones, like, you know, Spotify and iTunes and, uh, Spree, uh, Spreaker and Deezer and all those. Um, I do put stuff out on YouTube from time to time as well uh, when I can. So you you can if you if you're more interested in seeing my face. I don't recommend it, but if you are interested, then uh, you can um, you can you can get me on YouTube. Uh, I'm trying to put more of them out and trying to put more clips of them out. So you don't if you haven't got time to watch all of them, you can just take the kind of the meat the, the meaty bits out. Um, and I do have a website, thetalentequation.co.uk, uh, where you know, again, I'll, you can join the mailing list, and then you get it if you you never miss an episode because you get 
the video and the audio pumped straight into your email inbox and then you can uh go from there um yeah that's the probably the best way and twitter as well uh, i'm fairly active on twitter uh at stew underscore arm on twitter um yeah you'll you'll see me sharing and you know kind of challenging and posing questions uh to you know to various people out there and sharing research that i think is interesting in this endlessly fascinating space that we call coaching and talent development yeah and i know you hopped on you did a webinar uh you and i think it was you and dave uh did, did a webinar for usa hockey uh over covid that's really good so Anyone looking to learn a little bit more about, I believe you talked about uh, games, um, small sided games and how you can kind of design some stuff and uh, walk through it. But uh, that I remember that webinar being really, really good um, and really insightful. So, um, you know, trying to keep this within about 45 minutes here and this conversation here was, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot here. So if you want to learn more, uh, Stuart has a whole load of podcasts that are unbelievable. Um, please check those out. Um, and then, you know, feel free to reach out to him on Twitter because um, some of those conversations are, are really, really good and a lot of knowledgeable people that get involved in those. So, um, Stuart, I, I can't thank you enough. This was an amazing conversation. And for me, uh, as a coach, this is, uh, I was actually talking about it the other day. I was like, it's kind of cool for, for me because your podcast was so inspirational for me coming through as a coach and now to have you on is uh, quite an honor and finally meeting you in person a, a few weeks back uh, was really great so Stuart thank you so much for your time I really do appreciate it appreciate it uh, Zach thanks for having me on um, and all the best with all the stuff that you guys are doing uh, at USA Hockey you are doing you're pioneering you genuinely are you know I'm very fortunate to to work with a lot of different organizations across across the world and uh yeah i mean the stuff you're doing you've been doing with the adm and staying with that for a long long time and now just sort of pushing it through into the coaching space and seeing some of the stuff that's actually now translating onto the ground you know we were with the blue jackets weren't we and it's like coming to life there with the work that they're doing that caruso's doing over there yeah i mean it's it's gratifying and any contribution i can make i'm always always too uh, only too willing well absolutely well um i know i will be out your way and maybe a few months here. So um, maybe we'll, uh, I know you're a busy guy, but maybe we'll find some time to get together then. But if not, um, Stuart, once again, thank you so much. And everyone listening, I uh, hope you enjoyed. Hope you took a lot away from this conversation because I know uh, I did as always. So um, anyway, we'll see you all in a few weeks. Registration is open for the 2023 USA Hockey Level 5 Coaches Symposium. The Level 5 Coaching Symposium is where aspiring coaches from across the country will gather to attain the highest certification offered by USA Hockey. This year's Coaching Symposium is set for May 4th through the 7th, 2023 at the Seacrest Beach Hotel in Falmouth, Massachusetts. The Level 5 will offer large group and small breakout sessions, giving you the opportunity to explore and apply innovative approaches to coaching. The final list of speakers will feature some of the most accomplished coaches from across the world. We hope to see you there this spring.